Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today I am honored to be joined by another Caleb, Caleb Kaltenbaugh, and he has recently authored a brand new book called Messy Truth, How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Conviction. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I want to tell you a little bit about what we want to do here on the Learner's Corner. We want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because if you're like me, you've gone throughout life and you've maybe brought up certain subjects around all sorts of different people. And some people you've realized, oh, I can have a conversation around this. And other people, uh, you can't have a conversation around it to, uh, to maybe put it bluntly or so. And whether you receive uh, a response of shame or judgment or anger or whatever it might be, or you encounter someone who is just more set on uh, just telling you what they think than engaging in a thoughtful dialogue. I think most of us have probably had that experience. And here in the Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to dialogue about things that we may not agree about as well. And so that's why I'm so excited to be talking with Caleb today and to be talking about just this idea of of truth and messy truth and just diving in into that because you know if you've been listening to the podcast for a while this is something that I just love I love learning about it and I love just having conversations around these and one of the things that I always try to do is uh, provide additional resources because if you're like me and you really resonate with someone on either a topic or a subject that they're speaking you know maybe you'll listen to a few interviews that they did you'll buy their books and then it's like okay so how can I engage more with this idea? And that's what I always love to do in the Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. And so I want to recommend an additional book as well this week called uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for a Failure. And it's by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Luklanoff. I think I said that right. Anyway, the premise behind it is that in order for... Uh, not in order, I guess. As as parents, as leaders, we try to help the, not even just parents and leaders, but people who want to help the next generation succeed. We try certain sorts of, sorts of things in order to help, you know, give them a leg up in order to help them uh, do better than what we did. And the book is about, in our efforts to do that, we may have unintentionally created some harmful ideas that go along or some harmful beliefs that go around it. And so they talk about, three. they call them the three great untruths, which goes with it. And the first one is that what hurts you makes you weaker. The second one is that your feelings are always right. And the third one is that there's only good and bad people in the world. And so they spend the whole book really dissecting what these ideas look like, how they play out, in society and in larger culture and in the world, and then some suggestions of how we can go about uh, dealing with the reality in which we're in right now. And so that's one of my favorite books that I've read this year. I just discovered I discovered it a few years ago and finally got a chance uh, to go in around that as well. And so without, uh, I was going to say, there's going to be a little bit uh, further wait, but I do want to uh, say real quick, if you have an author or a subject or something that you're just really excited about learning about, I would love to hear from you. And the best way uh, to reach out to me is through learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear any recommendations that you got or people that you would love to hear um, on the podcast as well. 
However, today we're talking with Caleb Kaltenbaugh, and I want to tell you a little bit about Caleb. Caleb is currently the research pastor at Shepherd Church in Los Angeles and the founder of the Messy Grace Group, where he helps churches love and foster community with LGBTQ individuals without sacrificing theological convictions. He is the author of Messy Truth, which we're going to talk about today, God of Tomorrow, and Messy Grace, where he discusses being raised in the LGBTQ community following Jesus and how loving others doesn't require shifting beliefs. And we get into a little bit of his story on uh, on the front end of things of that as well. He's also a graduate of Ozark Christian College and Talbert School of Theology uh, at Biola, or Biola University. He received his uh, doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. In addition to having served as a lead pastor and associate pastor, Caleb has served on the boards of ministries and college, colleges, and he and his family currently live in Southern California. Now, without any further wait, here is my conversation with Caleb. Well, Caleb, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Well, thanks for having me, man. Yeah. And just as we get started, you know, you've uh, you know, you've written this book, Messy Truth. And anytime that I get the chance to talk with someone who is either authored a book or created a work of art, I love hearing the story behind what made someone go, Hey, I feel like I need to put this out into the world. And so I would just love to hear, you know, the the thing or the series of events that kind of led you to go, Yeah, I I want to write about this and I want to put this out into the world. Oh man, yeah. So there's a lot of series of yeah. events, but <laughs> but it really began when I was two, and my parents divorced, and um, they both entered same-sex relationships. And my mom was with a, a woman named Vera, who was a psychologist for uh, 22 years until Vera died of cancer. My dad had several different friends, so my whole childhood I was raised by um, three gay parents uh, who are also activists, uh, and. Uh, took me with them to pride parades, campouts, parties, bars, clubs, and so on and so forth. And I saw the a lot of the ugliness of, of some people who proclaim to be Christians and saw them uh, protest uh, pride parades with just horrible signs. I saw them throw water and urine on people. Um, I saw them ignore their young sons who were dying of AIDS. Uh, Christian families were back in the 1980s. And 90s, and I thought to myself, man, I never want to follow Jesus because if Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful he must be. And uh, I joined a Bible study when I was 16 to learn how to disprove the Bible. And of course, that turned out real well. It was a great move. And um, man, I just uh, uh, ended up coming to Christ and realizing that Christ was different. And um, then I had to come out to my parents as a Christian when I was 16. And they kicked me out for a while, let me back in. Long story short, I became a pastor, was preaching in Dallas, Texas. They moved down to be closer to our family, started attending my church, even though they knew that I had a, a differing theological belief on marriage than they did. And um, at the ages of 69, 70, they gave their lives to Christ. So um, I feel like I've had my my feet in kind of both worlds, the church world and the LGBTQ community. So I, I really try and have a passion to help people kind of bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you write Messy Grace and then, you know, you've come out with, mess, or, you know, by the time that this is out, Messy Truth will be out as well. 
And so, like, did, like whenever you wrote Missy Grace, did you always intend on like writing Messy Truth as well? No. Okay. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I know the right answer is yes, you did, but <laughs> but I really didn't. Um, and here, here's you know, I wrote Messy Grace so that it was all about somebody's personal relationship with their LGBTQ friends and family. Mm-hmm. That's why I wrote Messy Grace. And the more that I've worked with uh, churches and Christian colleges and seminaries, so on and so forth, and the more that I've consulted with schools um, and, and churches, the more that I've realized that I need to write something about the larger community. So the subtitle for Messy Truth is uh, How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Conviction. Mm-hmm. And whereas Messy Grace is all about your personal friendships or, or relationships with LGBTQ friends and family, Messy Truth is all about how do you get your LGBTQ friends and family connected to a redemptive Christ-centered community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just a, a, I know we're going to get into a little bit of the how-tos and stuff, you know, here in a little bit, but I would just love to start out and just asking, you know, where do you see, you know, maybe, maybe the larger, I don't know if Christian community or just community in general, like, what do you see that where we tend to get it wrong or qu- aren't quite off center as it pertains to the subject of truth and everything? Because, you know, I'm sure in some ways we do get it right, but maybe not completely or wholly and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say, I would say, I think we get it wrong on, on several different accounts, but there, there are two main ones. Um, on the one side, I think we get it wrong when we uh, start. Um, and I want to be careful how I say this because I know some people could take it wrong. So I'll be, I'll try to tread carefully and you can help me if I need yeah. help. But um, I think that you can start idolizing the Bible uh, to the point where uh, you miss Jesus, you miss mm-hmm. God. And I think that's what the Pharisees did. They so idolized scripture and their own interpretations of scripture. And I'm not even talking about interpretation here. I mean, I believe that God designed uh, sex to be expressed in a marriage between one man and one woman. I'm saying that we can be so focused on the passages that we forget God's love for that mm-hmm. person. And so I think that's that's one side of the coin. I think the other side, and these are probably more extreme uh, examples, although I think this next one is probably almost as common as what I just said. Y- you have people who get truth wrong because they somebody that they love comes out to them and they end up changing their theological view because somebody came out to them. I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to who have changed their theological view on sex or sexuality. And here's here's how they start. They start by saying, um, I just feel or somebody came out and I feel, and I think feelings are important. I really do. But it's kind of like, I also appreciate what Andy Stanley down at North Point in Atlanta said that feelings are great companions, but horrible leaders. Um, and we live in a society that overemphasizes feelings and reactions and underemphasizes logic and truth. And I think it was Augustine that said the mind and the will must never be pitted against each other. They must, you know, move together in concert. So I, I, <clears throat> I have yet to meet people who have said, well, I changed my view on uh, my theological view on sexual sexuality because of a deep Bible study that I did. Um, I have yet to hear that. 
And so that that's that's where I think Christians can get truth run wrong on two different kind of opposite sides. Yeah. I think even to your point about feelings, we've all made decisions that felt right. And then later your time has passed, it's like, oh no. It we may it may have felt right in the moment, but it was not it didn't end up being the right thing, which is just the case. One of the things, or another thing that I wanted to ask you, which you talk about in the book, which I think kind of pertains to that as well, is you uh is the difference between like objective truth, like truth that is truth, and then subjective truth, like the the opinions or the preferences that we make truth as well. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on how how can you tell that you're maybe making your preferences the capital T or objective truth whenever it is a more subjective thing? Yeah, well, first of all, <clears throat> I think that, you know, to define ju- objective truth is usually agreed upon truth that everybody, that it's just true, you know, like, um, you know, and then subjective truth would be preference. So like, for instance, subjective truth, two plus two equals four, water in its purest form is H2O, uh, the Las Vegas Raiders are a horrible team. That would be, <laughs> that might be preference. That last one, I'm not sure. It might be, it might be objective truth as well. Who knows? Yeah. Um, Nickelback is a bad band. So, I mean, these are examples, but I mean, preference is different. Preference is something that you have come to a conclusion on based on your experience and so on and so forth. And so um, sometimes I think the line can be blurred between objective truth and subjective truth, because even when you and I say that God exists, we believe that God is real. We believe that Jesus is his son. We believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave, uh, ascended to heaven, is coming back, so on and so forth. You and I would look at that as objective, absolute truth. Um, other people would look at it as subjective truth. And so um, I, I think that part of the difficulty when this comes to faith, and it's not just a math equation, I think part of the difficulty is, is actually faith in and of itself, uh, believing what is not seen. And I do believe that the fact that God is real is an objective truth. I think that there's proof all around. And so I think that proof outside of yourself Proof outside of uh, your own experiences really, um, uh, really kind of seals the deal when it comes to objective truth. Uh, because subjective truth, so much of it is based on your opinion. And when you have proof and data and so on and so forth outside of your opinion, I think that it's a bit more subjective or mm-hmm. objective. Yeah. I was going to say, and I guess, so how should we handle like the, the personal preferences? you know, the subjective truth, like, I don't know if subjective truth in this instance is the right word, but our preferences are things that we would say, hey, these are, these are maybe true for us and everything. I think that we need to, um, um, let, let me, let me, let me quote this guy. There's this guy named, yeah. um, I, I can't, I can't remember who said it. Gosh, I know I need to remember. It's either Jonathan Haidt or Albert Brooks. Um, I think it's Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is, um, a professor. Um, yeah, he wrote, uh, the, the coddling of the American mind is the thing that I remember him for. And I think, uh, a a faith divided or something along those lines. Yeah. I think he said that. So maybe been Albert Brooks, who's a professor at Harvard, but I think it was Jonathan Haidt. And he said that, um, uh, and he's talking about politics. Now I'll get back to your question. Trust me, we're doing a roundabout here, but he said that, uh, Americans need to learn how to disagree better, not less. 
that Americans need to learn how to disagree better, not less. So the biggest problem that we have in our society today is that people really don't understand how to disagree well. And I totally agree with him. I think he's 100% right. And um, when I think about uh, even my faith in Christ, there's a difference between acceptance and agreement. I mean, you and I are commanded by God to love people no matter what. That's acceptance. Acceptance to me is like empathy. Uh, Brene Brown defines empathy as uh, feeling with another person. Reggie Joyner from Orange and North Point defines accept, uh, empathy as the ability to put your own feelings and thoughts on hold long enough to feel and think with another person. And so for me, uh, accepting somebody, as Jesus kind of outlines in Matthew 5, 38 through 48, is really acknowledging their reality. It's not rejecting them as a person. It's not agreeing with their opinions, affirming their relationships, signing off on their political views. It is acknowledging their reality. You know, you can't walk a mile in somebody's shoes, but you can walk miles next to people. And so that, that's what I think we need to learn to do. But just because I accept somebody does not mean I have to agree with them. And we live in a society right now where a lot of people cannot tell the difference between acceptance and agreement or acceptance and approval, acceptance and affirmation. Mm-hmm. One of the points I really make in Messy Truth is that this is all about influence. You want to earn the right to be one of the people that your friends and family calls or texts when life hits the bottom of the barrel. And you and I can never earn influence with somebody and disrespect their reality. That's why I think it's important to acknowledge their reality, not agree with it, not reject them, but acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I am thinking of the person who's listening to this, though, and going, yeah, but am I, like, I'm compromising truth by, you know, doing that. What, what yeah. would you say to that person? Because I think that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty common argument, I feel that's like. Pretty, that, that's a pretty common argument. And I would even say, it, it's a, I would even say it's a good worry. It's a good concern. It shows that you do love God. And you're like, man, I, how, how can I be faithful? And that's part of that tension that we feel between grace and truth, right? There are times when we feel like, man, I feel like I'm compromising grace, you know, by being too harsh on this person, or I feel like I'm compromising truth. And the way that I look at it is you have to, I'm not asking you to do anything that Jesus and Paul didn't do. Like, if you look at it, Jesus spoke and shared shared the gospel one way with Nicodemus and a different way in the next chapter with the woman at the well. With Nicodemus, he started out with truth and ended with grace. With the woman at the well, he started out with grace and ended with truth. Why were those reversed? Well, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was all about legalism. You know, he thought he knew the word really well. That was a good place to start. With this woman over here, Jesus had to build a rapport with her. When you look at the Apostle Paul, Paul preaches differently to the philosophers in Athens than he does to the Sanhedrin. Like, I think if if Paul preached his sermon in Acts 17 today, there would be people who accused him of being you know, seeker sensitive because he doesn't even get to Jesus until the very end of the sermon. He spends so much time relating with them and building and making them lean in. And then I, I think about what Paul said in first Corinthians nine, 19 and following, I've become all things to all people. He met them where they're at. And so for me, um, it is not uh, compromising the truth. It is 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 strategically sharing the truth. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. It's contextualization. 
you work in missions, you would understand that. It's yeah. contextual sensations. It's knowing your audience. It's knowing how are they going to best hear this. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tease that out a little bit for the person who's listening? They're like, okay, I'm I'm wrestling with this and trying to figure out how to, you know, best contextualize the truth and try to figure out and how to how to do what Paul and how Jesus did it. But I maybe need some help of some action, like some action things of just trying to figure out how how to go about doing this. Right. So messy truth is divided into three parts: uh, conviction about God's words, compassion for anyone in conversations. Uh, with everyone. And so the whole idea between that is that there are three areas where we where truth really starts to feel messy with our convictions. And of course, God's truth is perfect. It, it's us that feels messy, but with our convictions, with our compassion, our conversations. And so I think it's, and I spend a third of the book dealing with empathy because God is the most sympathetic being ever. I mean, even Jesus's name, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, just cries out empathy. And so for me, when I think about this, um, I think that um, I, I really try to spend a, a fair amount of time in Messy Truth helping people to get to know their LGBTQ friends and family. Um, how do they relate? How do they identify? What's the difference between relating to and identifying as? Uh, what do the different letters mean? What, is, what does gender identity mean? Um, what kind of experiences have they had in life? Uh, you and I are not able to meet people where we're at, where they're at until we know where they're at. And so that takes getting, getting to know them on a human level, not looking at them like your latest uh, master plan of evangelism, Kirk Cameron evangelistic ninja moves, but just being an actual human being and getting to know them, taking them out to lunch, hanging out with them. Because again, the more you get to know somebody, the more you'll, be able to know, man, what, what is the best way they're going to hear this? Where, where, how have they experienced rejection in their past? What might they be afraid of? Do they have any church hurt? Do they have Christians who have hurt them in the past? Uh, will they respond poorly because of how Christians have treated them? If so, if, if, bad, if they've had bad experiences with Christians, how much more could good experiences help them? Um, so the more you get to know somebody, the more you'll be able to uh, really uh, implement what we talked about, influence, contextualization, so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions that I love to ask people, and I would love just your thoughts on it too, is do you have any go-to questions that, and not even necessarily, for just getting to know people better? Like one of my favorites is, you know, asking people, what are you most excited about like outside of work right now? Mm-hmm. Like, do you have any questions like that that you just like are in your back pocket or you love asking people? Yeah, actually, um, as you know, one of the chapters in, Messy Truth just has a list of questions, maybe like 72 or 100 questions. Yeah. You know, for staff teams and people, and even for your personal relationships, you know, stuff that is incredibly important. As a matter of fact, I think I littered the book Messy Truth with questions all over the place because I just think they're so important. So, one of the questions I like to ask people is, What are you passionate about right now? What are you excited about? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what are you working on? What are you excited about? You know, what's really uh, filling your bucket. Because I think that, you know, uh, social psychologists have, have proven this through their studies. And I think that it's just part of our sinful human nature. Um, it is way too easy for us to focus on the negative. You know, I think you probably know that, right? It is so yeah. easy to focus on the negative. You know, like you can preach a good sermon, you can have a good project. You have all these people saying it was good. And then you have one criticism and what do you go home thinking about? 
the yeah, one criticism. And so I think it's easy for us to immediately focus on the negative. So I like to ask people, like, what are you excited about right now? What are you doing that just really energizes you? Because I think that that kind of puts them in a, in a better mood with whatever else may have happened that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, and, you know, we were talking about uh, the, the preferences or subjective truth. How do you handle whenever other people have made their preferences, the objective, what they view as the objective truth? Like, how do you handle situations like that? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think in, in, that, in those circumstances, it's difficult to argue with people because uh, those individuals who have done that, who have made subjective truth into objective truth, the reason why they've done that is because their experience somewhere in their life is driving it. And it's hard to argue against somebody's experience. Like you can logically argue with somebody about two plus two equals four. I don't think they're going to get overly, you know, uh, emotional about that conversation. They're not going to say, how could you? How could you say that equals four? You've triggered me. Nobody's going to say that. But on the other hand, um, when somebody has made their subjective truth out to be an objective truth that they're trying to hold other people to as well. Um, it's driven by experience and emotions. And anytime you start trying to argue against that, they look at you as uh, being harmful and hurting them and you don't understand and so on and so forth. And so there are two things that we need to do besides praying in that moment. Number one is listen. And number two, I like to ask questions. I like to listen so I can ask questions because questions are just so powerful. Like you look at Jesus, um, he he asked in the gospels probably about, I don't know, 300 or more questions just over and over again. Um, I don't think the church leaders or Christians in general know how to ask good questions. I really don't. Like I, my wife does because she's a counselor. She's a marriage family therapist. So she has to, if you're an attorney that litigates in a courtroom, you have to know how to ask good questions and be an expert. But I think that we need to kind of embrace the Socratic method, but even uh, the rabbinical method of of how they did in the first century of learning what goes into asking a really good question. And so uh, because questions really disarm people. Um, they make people think. They're not imperative statements. Um, they invite dialogue. And so somebody who's made their subjective truth into an objective truth is going to be extremely um, just kind of standoffish, is going to be ready for, to fight, ready for battle. But when you ask questions, questions, they start dropping their guard. And so those are the two things I would say. Listen, ask questions. Yeah. What have you learned about like learning to ask better questions or even like listening for, I don't know if it'd be like the subtext in people's uh, speaking to learn like, oh, I think there might be something more to what they're saying there. Yeah. Um, I think that, first of all, if you want to listen for when there might be something more there, you got to listen for certain clues or cues in what they say. Um, I listen for things like this, like, um, things aren't going well. I never thought this would happen. Um, I thought this person would be here forever. I just moved, um, just got this job. I don't know what to do. These are all things that really clue you into 
the fact that um, they're wandering, they're open, uh, they are feel like to some degree they're in uncertainty and they're open to a conversation um, about maybe truth in the future. And so I, I listen for that kind of stuff. As far as knowing how to ask good questions, I, I try to do things like, you know, listen to podcasts, listen to interviewers. Um, I've read books on questions. I've listened to podcasts on questions. I mean, even the um, IdeaCast, the Harvard Business School's IdeaCast, they have, um, you know, different episodes just on asking questions, um, knowing how how good questions start, um, trying to organize them like you're trying to get to a point. I, I think those are all things that are just important, but you can never ask really good questions until you get to know somebody, until you listen, until you hear what they're saying. Because some people just go, again, with evangelism. They have their, hey, these are the five ways that you evangelize, five questions you ask. And I'm just going to go in there and start asking them. Okay, well, that is not saying God can't use it, but there's a good chance you're going to bomb. Mm-hmm. And you're going to walk away thinking, well, at least I tried. They weren't open. Uh, no, you were a little bit of a moron. Like you didn't even care enough to listen to where they are in life. You know, uh, this is not a sprint. It's a marathon with most people. Mm-hmm. One of the things that reading through uh, your book, Messy Truth, that it made me think about was just how does this play out in terms of cancel culture as well? Because, you know, if you're if you're wanting to speak the truth, you know, in, in a loving way to people's lives, like sometimes it could be like, well, hey, that's not, that's not nice. You know, that's not true for me. And, you know, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to remove you from my life or I'm going to, you know, depending on how large the scale is, you know, you could get canceled. And so I would just love your thoughts on just managing through just that. Well, first and foremost, I think that Christians need to remember those of us who are, um, adults now or young adults or so on and so forth, those of us who have faith in Christ, it was our predecessors in the 80s and 90s who were doing cancel culture as well. Mm. I mean, I still remember when Jerry Falwell Jr. um, protested the Teletubbies because he thought Tinky Winky was gay. And that was just embarrassing, okay? I'm not saying Jerry Falwell Sr. was a bad dude, okay? I'm just saying that that was embarrassing. Um, I remember when um, Christians were boycotting Disney back in the 80s and 90s. I'm like, why? I wasn't even a Christian. I was like, why would you? Why? Out of all things, they're not having satanic rituals down in the basement. You know, it, it's just so. I mean, there's a sense in which I think we have to remember that whether we want to or not, our community participated in this and to some degree still does. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I think we need to remember with cancel culture, cancel culture, there are some people on the fray that just love to stir the pot. And so they're pot stirs. Best thing to do with those people is just walk away. I mean, they just want to argue. But there are a lot of people who um, are into cancel culture. If you don't agree with this part of my life, I'm kicking you out. Here's here's what that's really all about. It's about their identity. Okay. Um, I know there, there, there are really three kinds of people and I on this and must truth. There are people that have experience with LGBTQ and those would be usually heterosexual straight people. Number two, there are people who relate to LGBTQ. That could be LGBTQ people who are uh, celibate out of their theological convictions. That could be LGBTQ people who um, 
are in relationships, but they don't see uh, LGBTQ as their main worldview. But then also uh, you have people who identify as LGBTQ. And those are the individuals that we're talking about here. Those are the individuals where everything, everything that they do, everything they say, everything they see in life is through the lens of LGBTQ. They cannot imagine their life without LGBTQ in that sense. Um, whereas you and I would say that we have many roles or many different identities. Like I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a Disney freak. I love star Wars. I mean, all that kind of stuff, you know, that's me. Um, but my main priority, my main primary identity is based in Jesus and him alone. He is my lens through how I look at life. He is the number one filter for how I make my decisions in life. Um, and, and it's important because when your identity is placed in Christ, he protects it for you. That allows you to be an ordinary person through whom which God can do extraordinary things. You don't have to fight to protect your identity in Christ. He does. It. And so when you see cancel culture and you see people kicking you out of your, their life because you disagree with them, not because you've harmed them, but because you disagree with them um, right there. It, it's it's because their identity has been rooted in whatever you disagree about and they see it as harmful and they can't tell the difference between your disagreement, you know, with their identity. It feels like you're stomping on them. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine who calls himself a Christian, but is very, very, uh, very uh, LGBTQ activist, does not believe that the Bible says anything bad about premarital sex. Um, so obviously, you know what he's doing. I mean, just stuff like that. And, um, you know, he just he just basically told me, I think that I'm just going to stop talking to the non-affirming side. And I said, why? We're, we are disagreeing. And he said, no, that's not disagreeing. If you disagree with this area of my life, you're causing the suicidality of teenagers. And it's like, seriously? Are you kidding? Disagreement and bullying? is causing the suicidality that there's more bullying in the black community in America. And the suicide rate is less than the middle-class upper-class white Caucasian suicide rate. So bullying was the main cause of suicide. Why is that rate not higher for the black community? Why is it, you know what I mean? So I think there's, I think that I don't like it when people create straw man arguments and try to exaggerate a point and make you part of that exaggeration. I think that's intellectually dishonest and I think it's emotionally manipulative. Yeah. That's just my opinion. No, that's, that's good. Uh, I think another, another common thing, and we might've touched on a little bit uh, that I think, especially depending on where you land uh, for being a Christian or not, uh, that you can deal with is, okay, so there's uh there's preferences that have become more socially acceptable or so, you know, and some people can point to, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ plus community. I think another one could be uh, maybe divorce as well or drinking, depending on um, depending on where you, you know, land on that. And I would just love your thoughts on how do you deal with situations to where you feel like, okay, what is a, uh, what is a preference is becoming the the objective truth for a culture or for society, if that makes sense. And yet at the same point, we would say, okay, we're not entirely, we don't agree with that preference becoming a a uh, 
an objective truth, if that may. Does that make sense? No, it makes complete sense. And I think that that's how society rolls all the time. Yeah. I really do. I think that and it doesn't matter the society. We could be talking about the society and contemporary North Korean culture over in North Korea with Lil' Kim, who's running it over there, Kim Jong-un. And um, I, I, I think that um, society always does that because society in so many ways bends to the main influencers and what the main influencers want and think and so on and so forth. So I think that one of the things we have to expect as Christians is that uh, what we believe and any belief in Jesus is never fully going to be accepted by society. And to be quite frank, in so many ways, will be rejected by all of society. I even think that with some Christians that value politics over faith, even though they realize they don't, they don't think that they're doing it, but they really are. They interpret their faith through their politics. And if you had, if we had, if I had said this about five years ago, I would have just been talking about people on the right. Now there are people all the way on the left who are even far past classical liberalism and are more progressive. They are repeating the same mistakes of the moral majority in the Christian coalition of the 1980s and 90s. And they're going to crash eventually, too. There's a great book by Douglas Murray called The Madness of the Crowds. He's a British scholar and um, social commentator over in Britain. He gives this great example of of, um, a train arriving at the train station. It's time to get off. You've arrived at your destination, but people want to keep going. And it's like, well, there's a wall right there. No, we're going to keep going. No, there's a wall right there. And so they push the gas and the train wrecks. And he's like... That's what is starting to happen with LGBTQ over in the UK. And he's like, I think it's going to happen here because eventually uh, people can only take so much extremism and the pendulum will swing back the other way. All throughout history, the pendulum has swung back and forth. There was a a Time magazine article back in 2019. It was either in the end of summer, beginning of fall. Time magazine did an article on a survey by GLAD. Gay and Lesbian Awareness Against Discrimination. And they found in this article that, believe it or not, Gen Z was less affirming of LGBTQ than millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that surprised a lot of people. And having worked with students a lot, I don't know if Gen Z is really less affirming, but I think there's a sense in which many students I've talked to throughout the last three years, they are tired of the extremism. Even liberal students are tired of the extremism. And I think it's a reaction to that. I don't think it's less affirmation, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that um, as society does, uh, how we interpret society to become anti-Christian, I think we need to understand that it's our job not to be anti-cultural, but countercultural. Because Jesus was not anti-cultural. He was countercultural when it came to the religious community, when it came to the secular community both. And so as society changes, it, it's, it's difficult sometimes not to be anti-cultural because you think you're standing up for what you believe in. You're standing up for God. God's big enough. He can stand up for himself. It's our job to engage culture. You can't engage somebody and be anti-somebody. Yeah. That makes sense? Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, just as we're 
uh, moving to the end of our time. There's a couple of quotes in here uh, that I would just love to read that just really resonated for me from the book uh, from you. But the first one that I wanted to read, because I think it just applies so much to this, is a quote that you have in the book from Frank Turk. And you know, he says, suppressed truth has terrifying implications because power rather than reason is the currency of influence for those unwilling to follow the truth. Yeah. I think Frank's spot on, man. No, that's good. I, I, uh, like I said, these are just some of the things. And so if you have any thoughts, feel free to say them, but if not, I think it does come down to power, right? I mean, it does. I mean, most things I, I used to think it was cliche when something bad happened to a leader. Everybody would say, well, it's either sex, money, or power. Sex, money, or power. I used to think it's too generalized. I don't think that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just yeah. don't. I yep. mean, come on, dude. After the last <laughs> how many years? I mean, I don't think that anymore. I'm like, yeah. And and when it comes down to it, I don't I think even over and above money and sex, I think that it's power. I think it goes back mm-hmm. to influence because when you do have power and influence, you can get the other two. Um, But I I think it does. And I think that um, when we come to Christ, here's the truth. We surrender whatever power we assume ourselves to have. And I don't know about you, but, and, and I don't mean to be a downer when I say this, because there are so many great things about being a Christian, but I have just found that my life with Christ at times feels like it is just a series of me surrendering over and over again to God um, every day. But really, I think about, you know, like, I think there's a reason why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus included repentance. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Because I think every day Jesus understood we had to surrender. And so, um, you know, like, like God told Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Uh, I think that is Second Corinthians twelve nine. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just I really believe this, bro. I really believe that um, a lot of people don't want to come to Christ because they don't want to surrender their self perceived power. And yet, it's kind of like what Jesus told Pontius Pilate: "You have no power except that which comes from on high." In other well, words, you, you don't have any power except for what my Father and I have given you, yeah. and it can be taken away. It's temporary. Oh yeah, yep. Uh, the next one that you wrote is, uh, and we talked about this a little bit more, but it's just such a powerful reminder for me. Our feelings are no match for how Jesus loves people. Man, yeah. that just hit me right in the heart whenever I was reading that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, one of my favorite verses is how the New Century Version translates Proverbs 4.23. Be careful what you think for your thoughts run your life. And I was just like, man, that's so true. Mm-hmm. Like. There's no greater enemy of Caleb than Caleb. I can just start thinking things and get in my own head. And I'm sure you know what I mean. It's just oh, yeah. so easy to to really become your your own worst enemy. And I've told my kids before, I've said, look, daddy doesn't even need Satan in his life. Daddy has daddy in his life. <laughs> you know, I have me. I have me. I do enough harm. You know, I don't need to throw Satan under the bus for everything because I'm throwing myself under the bus, man. Yeah, I, I preached at my at my church I'm on staff at. I preached my first sermon since being back on staff, and uh, it was on David and Bathsheba. Just a little text there, yeah, yeah. A little little passage. <laughs> um, but I started out my sermon this way, uh, quoting uh, uh, what Andy Stanley 
said, and several other pastors I've heard say this, but I said, I have participated in every bad decision I've ever made. And yeah. I think that society needs to, we, we need to learn to say that more often. Yeah. Uh, the final quote is, you know, Christians need to move ahead of society by distinguishing people from ideas. I would just love mm. your thoughts on that and how we can maybe potentially go about doing that. Yeah, that, that, that I still am processing that. I don't know how I came up with that quote. I did. I didn't yeah. steal it. Okay, man, I didn't steal yeah, it. Yeah, I, I know. know. It's from so, you, but yeah, still, but, no, I get it. But I mean, here's, here's the way I think I thought about it. Um, like you've seen road rage videos, mm-hmm. right? You may have been the victim of road rage. You may have expressed road rage. I have at least expressed it in my thoughts, <laughs> you know, when I'm on the yeah. freeway. I've had the GTA five moments where I'm just, you know, think about, but I don't because I love Jesus. Yeah. Um, but why does road rage happen? Well, obviously, you know, people get upset and people are morons when they drive, especially out here in uh, Los Angeles. I know they're not in Ohio where you're at. I know that <laughs> people are perfect drivers, but out in Los Angeles, I mean, good night. Yeah. Good night. I, I know everybody's like, oh, don't drive at nighttime. You know, there are too many drunk people. Well, you know what? It might be safer with them than during the daytime with everybody else making really bad decisions on the road. I don't know. But anyway, like the reason why road rage happens is because people are able, people forget that there are other human beings driving the car. They're getting mad at the car. They forget that there's a person in there. Mm-hmm. And then they remember the, there's a person in there and all that, you know, anger they have towards this inanimate object or situation they cast upon this person. When people get on uh, the internet, on social media, I'm sure you agree. I am, I am 100% convinced that most people will not have the guts to say to somebody's face what they say online. Yeah. Good night. I mean, seriously, there's no way, right? And so I think that when we get behind a computer screen, it's easy to think of a person as an idea or a project. Think about an idea. Do you have to be empathetic to an idea? Do you have to love an idea? No, you don't. You don't have to treat an idea well. Um, I don't know if you ever did a science project when you were in high school. Mm-hmm. I did. I think I got a C on it because I didn't care that much. Had a light bulb over a thing of dirt with seeds in it. Look, light from a light bulb can't grow plants. Give me my A. Right here. Here's my project. You know what I did with that project when I was done? I threw it away. I, I didn't need it anymore. I, I, I don't have it still. I know some people still have their science projects. They built the volcano. They built an electric car. They made lightning. They did whatever like that. But with science projects, you throw it away. We have to understand that people are not projects. People are not ideas. Um, people are made in God's image and likeness and are the recipients or potential recipients of Jesus's blood. Everybody, everybody is somebody that God created and Jesus died for. And the main way to remember and distinguish people from ideas or people from their opinions, or how about this people from your opinions? Like, I think another thing I say in there is that, um, nobody, no, you know, don't drag Jesus through the mud of your own opinions. Nobody deserves to be lowered down to your opinion of them. Because we're tarnishing the image and likeness of God. We are misappropriating the blood of Christ when we do that. Yeah. 
uh, and I think the final thing, and I think it's a great way, you, you close the book with this, and I think it's a great way to close our conversation as well, is you talk about the difference between being a guide and being a gatekeeper. A gatekeeper. Would you mind just teasing that out? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I was really kind of building some on what Donald Miller talks about in his book, Story Brand. Um, John Eldridge has talked about this a little bit in a book he wrote called Epic, uh, just about uh, movie figures and so on and so forth. And then I added a lot of the gatekeeper. But when you think about um, guides, like I'm talking about Mr. Miyagi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Gandalf, um, uh, Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury. Nick Fury. Yeah. yeah, I can tell you're a Marvel fan like me. Oh, yeah. Um, I just had a moment there where I didn't remember. I apologize, <laughs> but it's okay. I forgive you. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, I mean, like you think about, I, I mean, even in the Rocky series, you have Mickey. You know, Rocky's trainer, you have Apollo Creed. You, you have these people. Guides are more powerful than heroes in the stories because guides have already been there. And they're trying to lead the hero where they've already been. And a guide lets the hero make the mistakes. Mr. Miyagi lets Daniel get upset about things so on and so forth. You even see that in the new Cobra Kai series and so on. And guides um, don't try to control but they kind of say follow me here are the guardrails follow me and and they're letting them follow there are some people who are gatekeepers they stand at the gate and and they're like no you 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 know nobody can pass here if you do this this and this i have to protect this right here here's the deal whenever you follow follow jesus you are walking forward you can't follow jesus and stand still you can't stand still and lead other people Jesus has called us to make disciples of the nations, a.k.a. here in America, God has brought the nations to us. I'm sure Ohio is very multi-ethnic, just like Los Angeles is in so many different ways. And it's definitely multi-socioeconomic mm-hmm. and multi-generational. Like, you cannot lead people and stand still. You cannot lead people and take care of them and stand at the gate. And so we need more people who are guides. Because... As Paul says in Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul was a great example of a guide. So there you go. Yeah. Well, Caleb, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Messy Truth, and the, I mean, kind of the companion, Messy Grace, too, and continue to learn from you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things, to pick up the books, you know, all of that stuff? Um, you can go to uh, anywhere where books are sold. Uh, it's available via paperback. Ebook, Kindle, audiobook, Audible, Amazon, Target, Lifeway, Mardell's, Christian Book, Walmart, whatever you want to call it, Um, Apple Books, Google Play. I mean, just keep on going down the list. If you go to my website, um, I have a page on Messy Truth you can go to, CalebCultonBach.com. But yeah, that's the best place. And there's Messy Grace and Messy Truth. I've thought about, is it going to be a trilogy? Yeah. Is there going to be a third one? But it says that Jesus came in both grace and truth. So it's kind of like those are already there. So I do want to write a book on family eventually um, having to do with this and family. But I don't know if I call it messy family because that's, I think, every family. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> uh, well, Caleb, thanks so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. Hey, dude, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Okay, so I think coming out of that conversation, two things really got me thinking about it. One, I really want to check out that book that he talked about, uh, The Madness of the Crowds. That sounds very intriguing uh, to me, and that's just some of the sort of stuff that I love learning about. But I think the other thing 
that, and I was going to say, it's not just one thing I, I could go on, I feel like, for a lot about this conversation, just because I think about these things um, so much. Actually, I am going to give a couple. I would say it's just kind of the quotes near the end that he talked about, the one from Frank Turek about suppressing the truth and how, how we need to be better advocates of making sure the truth gets out there even if it can be harmful in the short term because in the long run it can it can be helpful and that doesn't mean that it's not painful but sometimes per- suppressing the truth hurts people and so i think that's one of the things that i was thinking about i think the other thing is again there's just so much in here. Uh, but Christians need to move ahead of society by distinguishing people from ideas and realizing that I think that is part of where the church, and not even just the church, I would say our society needs to get better at of moving to this place to where we can distinguish people, separate people from ideas, just as he was talking about in the conversation there. And so that's just one some of the things that I'm thinking about. Uh and I'll need to ponder a little bit more and uh, maybe at some point share more of my thoughts after I've had some more time to think about it for that. So if this happens to be your first time listening to the episode, go. I would love it if you subscribe to the podcast, if you left a rating and write a review on whatever podcast player you're, use, you're using. And yeah, and also uh, reach out to me at uh, the Learner's Corner email, learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you in any uh, guest books, podcast videos, anything like that that you're currently learning from. And uh, maybe we can give a shout out here on the podcast as well. So I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thanks again to Caleb for being on the podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for the podcast. And thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for the podcast as well. Super grateful for all of you. And thank you, the listener, to listen all the way to the end of the podcast as well. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.